Philippians chapter 4, and we are going to read the first nine verses. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul lays out certain key principles whereby believers in Christ can enter into and enjoy a life of spiritual stability and vitality. And the key to this chapter is verse 1, in which Paul lovingly greets the Philippian church, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And the word thus means like this. It means in this way. In what follows, verses 2 and following, Paul then is calling the attention of these Christians to the way in which they are going to stand in the Lord. Focusing our attention in verses 2 through 9, we hear Paul suggesting in the first place that we're to stand in the Lord by being peaceable. We're to stand in the Lord, in the Lord stand firm in the Lord by being peaceable. Verse 2, I entreat you, dear, And I entreat Syndicate to agree in the Lord. The Philippian church, though a commendably commendably good church, was nevertheless a church that was riddled with problems. It was a church that had a problem on on its hand, a major problem at that, because as suggested here in verse 2, there are two women in the church who seemed to be not on speaking terms with each other. It appears they were holding a grudge against each other. And we can say that we, because, based on Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and following, where Paul 
hints at the rivalry that was taking place in the church. Paul had to give this instruction in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. This was a church that was zealous as far as serving the Lord was concerned. Paul, in fact, commended this church for having supported him. He says, no other church stood with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you only. And yet it seems that even the very thing that held them together, they were divided. They were divided over the work of the Lord. And these two women evidently got caught up in that tension. In fact, so tense was the situation between these two women that Paul had to co-opt the help of a third party to intervene. We read there in verse 3, Paul writes, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And needless to say that there's nothing that more causes instability in our personal lives, instability in our churches, than unresolved interpersonal conflicts. How many a church has been destroyed? How many a homes have been wrecked because of this matter of interpersonal conflicts, antagonism, bitter conflicts, bitter unresolved tensions with one another? The Word of God admonishes us in Romans chapter 12, verses 16 and 18, live in harmony with one another, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And this is crucial because in the absence of unity and harmony, whether in the church or in the home, we actually give Satan a foothold in our lives. Indeed, James chapter 3 verse 16 warns, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And how then can believers in Christ maintain a spirit of peaceableness among themselves, especially in the face of potential antagonisms and tensions? And one key to achieving and maintaining this unity, this harmony, I think, is hinted at in verse 3, where Paul, as he writes to these Uh, to this third party to intervene, notice what Paul says. He says, yes, I ask you, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Notice there that Euodia and Syndicate, these two women who were in tense conflict, were in this tense situation of antagonism, notice they are implicated here in verse 3 as having their names in the book of life. And certainly nothing will drive us to harmony, to unity with one another, than the recognition that we are headed for the same place, namely heaven. And if that is true, or since that is true, how then can we foster and foment tension one with another? Now, secondly, we're to stand firm in the Lord, not only by being peaceable, but we're to stand firm in the Lord by being joyful. Note verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now what 
we'll find in this epistle, we'll find that as many as 18 times, the words joy, rejoice, rejoiced, and rejoicing are found. 18 times. So that the keynote of this epistle is joy in the Lord. Indeed, joy is the emphasis in this epistle. And if there is anyone who was well qualified to issue the command to be joyful, it was none other than the Apostle Paul. In terms of suffering for the Lord, Paul suffered tremendously, had been through a lot, as seen in such passages as 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, where he says, listen, we were pressed, hard pressed beyond measure, so much that we despaired even of life. He catalogs in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 4 through 10, a slew of trials that he had been through as a servant of Jesus Christ. He talks about sleepless nights, bearing hunger, being stoned, shipwrecked, and so on and so forth. In fact, after preaching the gospel at Philippi, you know the account in Acts chapter 16, how that he was beaten badly along with Silas, and then they were thrown in prison. And what do you know? From jail, he and Silas prayed and sang hymns to God, Acts 16 and verse 25. And even as he gave the instruction to rejoice in the Lord, to be joyful in the Lord, Paul was at this time in enforced confinement in Philippi. Now the thing we need to say about joy, we need to say a few things. That is this, that joy is, a, is vital and essential to our Christian lives. The joy of the Lord is your strength, we read in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10. This joy, we need to realize, is not a happy-go-lucky disposition. This joy is not a state of ecstasy or some kind of emotional high. This joy is not mere happiness. Nor is this joy a condition that is reserved for heaven. What then is this joy of which the Bible speaks? And we would put it like this, it is a condition of assured peace and contentment and assured sense of spiritual well-being which derives from the knowledge that Christ is in our hearts and lives, having under his perfect control all that pertains to our good in the here and now and in the age to come. In a nutshell, joy is the assurance that God is in control of our lives. Someone has defined such joy as, quote, the overflow of the experience of God's presence in our daily situation. And Paul's use of the imperative when he says here, rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice, signifies that this is not a suggestion. Paul is not giving a recommendation. Paul is, in fact, issuing a command. We are commanded by God to be joyful. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, rejoice evermore. And we are commanded to be joyful, which means that when we are given to complaining, when we are given to murmuring, when we are given to bad attitudes, when we are given to a sour, dour disposition, we are in fact sinning against God. This is not something I think we, we I don't think we take this, um, the average believer takes this very seriously, but that's what the word of God suggests. If it's a command and if we are otherwise, then we are not living according to the will of God. The question is, how does rejoicing in the Lord contribute to our stability? 
We'll let the prophet Habakkuk answer that question. You know, the book of Habakkuk was about partially Habakkuk's lamentation about the Chaldeans, how that they were ill-treating the people of Israel. They were wicked, and Habakkuk had a real problem with that. He asked God, he says, Lord, will you not judge the wicked? You are of purer eyes than to look upon iniquity. You cannot stand iniquity. And by implication, the prophet was saying, how then can you allow the Chaldeans to have their way with us? By the time you get to chapter 3, Habakkuk has changed his tune. He's singing the praise of, of God. He says, though the fig tree will not blossom, though there be no herds in the stalls, and he talks about economic conditions being not being right, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord my God. What will enable us to have this kind of joy? Certainly, the knowledge of our salvation, the assurance that we are saved. Romans chapter 5, verse 2, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. If we are saved, that's what we are destined for. Despite the hardships, despite the sufferings of this life, the word of God tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Think of the vast treasures of our salvation in Jesus Christ. What do we have when we talk about our salvation? It's not just deliverance from hell. Here are some of the things that constitute our salvation for which we should be joyful. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17 says that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Someone has well said that forgiveness is the most glorious word in the English language. To know that our sins are forgiven, to know that they have been paid for, to know that God will not call us to account, the fact that they were nailed to the cross, Christ died for our sins, we will not come under condemnation, but that we'll stand before God someday in peace should be source of grounds for rejoicing. Word of God tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, in him we are blessed with all spiritual blessings. Colossians chapter 2 verse 10, in him we are complete. We have a full, complete salvation, a perfect salvation, a salvation that will never be taken from us, a salvation for all eternity. We can rejoice not only on account of our salvation in Christ, but we can rejoice because of our security in the Lord. Psalm 63 verse 7. The psalmist says, therefore you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. The blessed truth we need to always have uppermost in our minds is this, is that regardless of how difficult the days become, regardless of how challenging the days might be, you and I are secured in the palm of of God's hand. We are secured. We are being kept safe. And we notice from our text the constancy of this joy. Notice from our text the suggestion that this joy is not to be seasonal nor circumstantial. This joy of which Paul speaks is not a joy that is fervent in one instance and in another instance 
cools down. Rather, this joy is a joy that is meant to be constant. It is a joy that is meant to be ongoing. Notice what Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. This means that such rejoicing is independent of circumstances. It's not based on what happens. And we can rejoice in the Lord always. Why? Because in the Lord, the one in whom we are to rejoice, this Lord has under his perfect control all that relates to our circumstances. He is in charge. He knows everything about us. He knows our difficult circumstances, and he's committed to see us through our challenges, our crises, however difficult they might be. As someone as well said, it's not so much what Jesus gives us as what he is in us. He's our peace, Ephesians 2.14, and as our peace, he keeps us in perfect peace. That's why we're called to rejoice in him. We're to stand firm in the Lord then, number one, by being peaceable. When we're in right relationship with others, when there are, un- when there are not tensions reigning between us, when we are at peace one with another, we are in a position to stand strong in the Lord. Why? Because Satan will not have an advantage over us. We're to stand firm in the Lord by being joyful. But thirdly, we're to stand firm in the Lord by being graceful. Look at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And what we have here is a call to be calm, is a call to be patient under all provocation, under all situations of tensions and antagonisms. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Our culture says, no, be bellicose, be warlike, stand up for your rights, let people know that you're not into being run over. And what does the word of God say here? Let your gentleness, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. What Paul calls for here is a spirit of gentleness. And this is a trait that indicates strength and maturity of Christian character. This is a trait that should mark our lives as believers in Christ. In fact, the Apostle James lauds this very virtue in James chapter 3, verse 17, where he writes, James says this, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This piece is gentle. This this trait is a, a trait of gentleness. It's a trait that has to do with forbearance. Paul says, let this be known to everyone. Let them see that you're of a of, of, a, of a reasonable spirit. Let them see that you are not ready to be warlike. The Apostle Paul, in fact, lays down this gracious disposition as a requirement for Christian leaders. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, the one who would serve as an elder, he must be gentle. 
In 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, he writes that Christians should be reminded of this virtue. He says, remind them, he's writing to Titus, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That's what the Christian should be known for. The Christian should not be one who is bellicose, who is warlike, who is ready to fight. Notice here, Paul cites the motivating factor that should govern this spirit, this reasonable, gentle spirit. What is that motivating factor? Notice what Paul says, the Lord is at hand. What does that mean? The Lord is at hand. This admits of two possible meanings. One, it may have reference to the Lord's second coming. And if we take it as such, what Paul would be saying is this, in view of the fact that the Lord Jesus is coming again, will not want to linger in tense, antagonistic relationships. We'll not want, or rather, we'll want to be gentle, we'll want to be forbearing and reconciliatory in situations of potential antagonism. Why? Because the Lord is coming. We don't want the Lord to find us in that position. But the expression, the Lord is at hand, may also have in view the near presence of God, his nearness to us. What Paul would be then saying is this, whenever we're inclined to become otherwise, we're not being gentle and we're inclined to be warlike and to be in tense situations with people, head to head, butting heads together. Let's remember Paul is saying the Lord is right there. He's right there at hand. Can you imagine if we were to reckon on the fact of God's near presence, how that would revolutionize our attitudes, it would revolutionize our actions to know that when we are speaking, when we are thinking, when we are relating to others, God is right there next to us. And Paul himself knew the reality of this near presence of God when he was rejected by those whom he expected to stand with him. Paul was expecting in his moment of trial that there would be people who would be standing with him. And yet he writes in 2 Timothy 4, 17, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Verse 17, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Paul says, listen, when I was forsaken at the moment I needed company most, God's presence was so real to me, it was what sustained me, it was what strengthened me. It was in that respect I was rescued from the lion's mouth. If we are going to be stable, beloved, if we are going to be strong, we are going to have to cultivate and maintain the spirit of gentleness, of forbearance, recognizing that the Lord is always at hand We are to stand firm in the Lord by being joyful. We are to stand firm in the Lord by being graceful. And then fourthly, we are to stand firm in the Lord by being prayerful. Look at verses 6 and 7. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Again, what we have here is not a suggestion, but a direct command. And being a command in the form of a prohibition, what it therefore means is this, that whenever we are overtaken by anxiety, whenever we are faced by worry, by fretfulness, that's a sin because we are in effect disobeying God. We are disobeying the command to not be anxious about anything. But not only is anxiety a sin because it's contrary to the command of God, anxiety is a sin against God. Why? It dishonors God. It demeans the Lord. How so? Because whenever we are given to anxiousness, whenever we are given to fretfulness, to worry what we are actually doing, we are magnifying, we are accentuating our circumstances over and above the might and power of God. Be anxious for nothing, is the literal translation of the opening words of verse 6. And the word nothing stands at the beginning of the sentence, which means it's emphatic. If Paul were uttering these words, we could actually hear the intonation of his voice. It would be something like this, for nothing be anxious. Absolutely nothing. Nothing in all the world, nothing whether with respect to the present or the future should find us in a state of anxiety. Again, this is easier said than done. And if we followed this morning, we recognize that it's only as we're living in relationship with the Lord, as we know his word, as we apply the truths of his word concerning who he is, that we'll be able to navigate the challenges brought on by anxiety and worry. Now this command, do not be anxious about anything, must not be taken as a call to carelessness. It must not be taken as a care, as a, as a, to mean flippancy, being nonchalant about life's responsibilities and challenges. We're not told here to be carefree, to be careless. So what's the solution then to anxiety? Verse 7, but in everything, here's the contrast, the solution now. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known unto God. Translation, tell God about your worries. And here we're reminded of 1, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, which says, Casting all your cares on him, or all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But God cares about us, beloved, is reason why we should not get all tense and wound up about our needs. Matthew chapter 6, verses 31, 32. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Here we have one of the most comforting, assuring resources in times when we're inclined to be fretful. It is that of prayer. In everything, by prayer and supplication. And note the interesting contrast. On the one hand, we are to be, fear, we are to be fearful and anxious about nothing. 
On the other hand, we are to be prayerful and thankful in everything. How wonderful it is to know that as beloved children of his, you and I as Christians can talk to God about everything. No, we might not be able to talk to our closest friend or bosom friends about everything. We might not even be able to talk to family members about everything. Some things we would shudder to mention to those closest to us. But the blessed truth is this. We can take everything to God in prayer. God is never disturbed by the frequency of our coming to him. Why? Because he never slumbers nor sleeps. We can never come to him too often. Why? Because he himself has invited us to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And what's the assurance given with this? We're going to close. If we try to finish, then we'll go on and on and on. So the question is, what's the assurance that's given us? Don't be anxious about anything. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Talk to God about it. What's the blessed result? What's the blessed effect? Notice the assurance given. The C part of verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's interesting to note, if you look at that verse very carefully, you'll notice in that verse what is not promised us. Notice we're not promised that the situation that is causing us to be anxious and fretful will be removed. God doesn't promise that. And how do we know that? Second Corinthians chapter 12, 1 through 10, Paul stored in the flesh, for which he prayed to God three times that it might be removed, but it was not removed. God does not promise to take away the situation that is causing our anxiety or fretfulness. There's no promise to us that God will work things out the way we would like him to work. Rather, what God promises, notice from the text, God promises, God guarantees that when we go to him in prayer, when we take everything to him in prayer, he promises to impart to us what? His peace. His peace. In closing, what is the nature of this peace that God promises us? Notice, first of all, it is a supernatural peace. It is described here in our text as the peace of God. That makes it supernatural. In other words, this is the very peace that God himself has. This is the very peace that God himself possesses. You see, God is unruffled by nothing. God is undisturbed by nothing or by no one so that he never becomes anxious about anything. He's never disturbed about anything that has happened, nor by anything that may happen, as someone puts it. Perhaps the best illustration of the peace of God is that found in Mark chapter 4, verses 37 through 40. You remember our Lord Jesus was asleep in the boat. And water was coming into the boat. The boat was likely to be, be filled and capsized, and the disciples were all frantic. Remember, they came to him, the Bible tells us in Mark chapter 4, verses 37 through 40, a great windstorm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, here it comes, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care 
that we are perishing? Aren't you anxious and worried about this idea that we're going to die? Verse 39. And he awoke. Notice the matter-of-fact manner in which our Lord Jesus approached the storm. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, verse 40, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? That is what the peace of God is like. That's the kind of peace that God has. That's the kind of peace that Christ had. That's why Christ was able to say, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. He says, Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. Secondly, not only is this peace a supernatural peace, but it's a superabounding peace. It is a superabounding peace because Paul describes it as the peace of God, notice, that surpasses all understanding. It's unfathomable. It's superabounding. It's beyond our comprehension. Thirdly, it is a safeguarding peace. It is a safeguarding peace. Because notice what Paul says in verse 7. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The, ver the verb in the Greek carries the idea of creating a garrison. It is a word that relates to the work of a sentry, one who functions as a God. The word of God is saying here that when we go to God in prayer with our concerns, with our anxieties, the peace of God will garrison our minds, will keep our minds, and the suggestion is that it will keep our minds from cracking, from falling apart. It's interesting that in First Timothy 2, 1 and 2, prayer is productive of peace in our society. We are to pray for kings, rulers for those who are in authority, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Peace in our society. But here in our passage, we see that prayer is productive of peace within the soul. And that's, what, that's where it really matters. Because there can be no peace in society. There can be no peace in our families until we ourselves are enjoying the peace of God. May God bless richly these truths to our hearts. May we keep our eyes focused on the Lord Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And in so doing, not become anxious and fretful, realizing that he is in control. And because he is in control, everything is working together for our good and for his glory. May God bless these words to our hearts for his name's sake.